Today we're going to continue our systematic study of the book of Matthew. We last left off in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew. Uh, Today we'll pick up our study in verse 18 and we'll look to complete the rest of the chapter. In today's portion, uh, we will be looking at four different healings that Jesus uh, performed on five different individuals in a message I've entitled, More Lessons from Healings. Uh, We opened chapter 8 and we learned some lessons from healings and now we get to have some more lessons from healings uh, this morning. And so uh, we're going to focus in on each healing and just look to glean different things from each one. And so I look forward to just going through the Word with you this morning. Will you please stand as we read this morning's portion of Scripture? Just in honor of the Lord and His Word. We're going to read from verse 18 through 26 to start off. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 says, While He spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped Him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Verse 23, When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, He said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Him. But when the crowd was put outside, He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all that land. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning and the blessing that it is to gather together as a church body to worship You, Father, to uh, come and hear Your Word. And Father, we pray that as we've gathered here this this morning, that we would uh, come with the anticipation and expectation to hear from You this morning. Lord, as we spend time in Your Word, we know that Your Word is is powerful, that it's living. Lord, that it's uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, and and it can uh, just divide and and cut right where it needs to. And so, Father, we pray, I pray, that we would uh, be open to how Your Word would want to work in our lives. We'd allow You the privilege, uh, the blessing of, of having You just to to work in our lives. And and so, Lord, may we be moldable clay this morning. Bless our time. Lead and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The opening of the text this morning has Jesus speaking with His disciples. Uh, From the other Gospel accounts of Mark and Luke, we know that this event took place soon after Jesus and the disciples had returned from their trip across the sea from Decapolis. Uh, The other accounts as well tell us that there were multitudes that welcomed Jesus as He returned to Capernaum. And here we read read of a man that came to Jesus and entreated Jesus to come with Him and to lay His hands upon his daughter. 
As Jesus went to follow this man, he encountered another woman. We're going to look at at this woman's account first, and then we're going to cover the details regarding the man with the uh, dying daughter. And so in verse 20, I'll draw your attention there, we're introduced to a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. We don't know exactly the cause of this woman's blood flow, but the other gospel accounts do tell us some other details. We know that this woman has been searching for a cure for the last 12 years. She has gone to several different physicians and has not been able to uh, be made well by any of them. In fact, Mark's gospel says that some of the physicians even made her worse. Okay? And lastly, we're told in the other gospel accounts that she had spent all of her livelihood on seeking a cure and was left with nothing. She had nothing left at all. And so we, we see the, a little bit more details here than what Matthew gives us. Because of her blood flow, according to Old Testament law, she would be considered unclean. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, says that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. Because of this law, this woman would have been identified as unclean for the last 12 years. Being labeled unclean was a a horrible state to be in. If someone was unclean, they were separated from others. They were forbidden from worshiping in the synagogue and in the temples. And if anyone touched someone that was unclean, they too would become ceremonially unclean. They would have to bathe and they'd have to wash their clothes. And and it wouldn't be until evening time, days in, that they would be uh, clean again. And so this woman, she's had it very rough. These 12 years have been very difficult for her. And as Jesus passed by amongst the multitudes that were following Him, the woman thought to herself... If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. You know, some may read of this woman's faith and find fault in her faith. That it it may seem a little superstitious to believe that she could be healed by touching a garment. And some may discredit her faith because it wasn't very bold uh, faith. Uh, Some may even find her faith foolish to think that she could slip one by everyone, even by God, that, you know, I'll just reach out here and don't have to even tell Jesus I'm just going to get healed and it'll be done. And so some people may ridicule or, or put down this woman's faith. But let me suggest to you that her faith was not in the power of a garment. Okay? Her faith was in Jesus Himself. She had faith that Jesus was able to heal So much faith in him, in fact, that she felt that even if she just merely touched his garment, she would be healed. And there's a reason, I believe, why the woman did what she did. I think it has a lot to do with her present circumstances. And a desire to, to be secretive and to not draw attention to herself. We have to recall the facts that we learned from the other gospel accounts and it helps to paint a, a better picture, a better understanding of what's going on here. We have to recall that this woman was ceremonially unclean. Okay? 
And as such, she really has no business to be inside a large group of people and being touched and, and pushed and kind of uh, pressed about. And so the other gospel accounts tell us that there was multitudes, that they were thronging and pressing in uh, upon Jesus. And so we know that there were a lot of people there. They were all crammed together. And this woman would be touching a lot of people. That was not good for her. It was not good for everybody else as well. They would become ceremonially unclean. Remember as well the nature of her sickness. A a blood flow issue for a woman would be a a very private and, and sensitive matter. Okay. Something she probably didn't want everyone to know about, you know, running up to Jesus, say, "I have this problem," and and tell everybody out, and uh, and so we might be able to look at her and, and understand. Okay, well, that makes sense. Maybe she comes privately that way. And lastly, I think this woman, I think she's dealt with so much disappointment and, and so much misplaced hope. As we know, she spent all that she had on physicians trying to cure her, and that perhaps. She didn't want to have to bear the sorrow of yet another failed opportunity for healing. And so she, she goes about doing what she did secretly. She tries to do it under uh, disguise and without bringing mention. But interesting, it, it tells us, as Jesus passed by, she pressed through the crowd, came up behind him, and reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And at the end of verse 22, Matthew tells us that the woman was made well from that hour. Interestingly, though, the other gospel accounts, they tell us more specifically that the blood flow was healed immediately after she had touched the hem of his garment. After she touched him, Jesus stopped and he turned around. Again, Matthew doesn't give us all the details of what happened, but Mark and Luke do. They tell us that when he turned around, he asked, Who touched him? He said, Who touched me? And, and the disciples, they were a little perplexed. They're like, Jesus, everyone's thronging in on you and pressing in on you, and, and you're asking who touched you. That, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but Jesus said he knew someone had touched him because he had perceived power going out from him. And so when the woman knew that she had been caught, she came trembling before the Lord. And she fell down before Him in reverence and told Jesus the whole truth. We don't get all that in Matthew, but if you want to look it up in Mark and Luke, you can do so. Jesus' reply to her was a very endearing reply. He said to her, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. This woman uh, was given this endearing title of daughter. In fact, nowhere else in the gospel does Jesus refer to someone as a daughter. I mean, outside of saying, you know, mothers against daughters and mothers-in-law against, you know, he'll reference daughters, but to identify and call someone daughter. This is the only account we have in all the gospels where Jesus would do so. Jesus did not condemn her for not being bolder. And he did not condemn her for not coming to him publicly. He didn't condemn her for thinking that his him could heal her. Jesus encouraged her. And he lifted her spirits and he healed her. And it brings us to our first point, that our lesson that we learned from this woman's healing. We learned that God meets us where we're at. Okay? We don't need to have excellent huge amounts of bold faith that lines up theologically, intellectually, in order to get an audience with the Lord. 
He knows where we're at. He knows where we've come from. He's willing to meet us where we're at. But the great thing about God is that He's not going to leave us where we're at. And so He loves us so much that as we come to Him in our faith, and it may be a little bit misguided, it may be a little bit misdirected, He's going to take that, He's going to challenge it, and He's going to encourage you to grow in that faith to where you would have a, a, a more proper uh, type of faith. But this woman's faith, He met her where she was at. She wasn't very bold. She kind of did it a little secretly, and, and some may say a little superstitious, but God still met her where she was at. And God will meet us where we're at as well. He knows where we've come from, what we're dealing with, and He will meet us where we're at. Continuing, we're going to look back here at verses 18 and 19, and then we'll read 23 and 26 just to get to this next uh, portion. So while he spoke these things uh, to them, verse 18, Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed followed him, and so did his disciples. Verse 23, When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all that land. Looking back here, uh, recalling the opening verses, verse 18 tells us that the ruler came to Jesus, a ruler came to Jesus, and in Matthew's account, we're not told much about this ruler, but as again, the other Gospels do give us some clues, and they give us some more important details that I'd like to share with you. Both Mark and Luke tell us that this man's name was Jairus. Jairus, uh, it tells us in those accounts, was a ruler, Uh, he was the ruler of the synagogue. And so that was uh, important to note as well. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And so uh, as you take that into consideration, uh, a synagogue, if you guys aren't familiar with a synagogue, I I have a picture there. That's a replication of what they believed the uh, synagogue in Capernaum looked like. But a synagogue is uh, uh, basically a a place to gather for worship. The exact origin of the implication of synagogues is debated. But most seem to suggest that that came into practice after Solomon's temple was destroyed. And the people of Judah were taken off to Babylon. Local worship and and instruction became necessary for those left behind in Jerusalem. And and so synagogues were formed. Uh, A synagogue is very much like what we would refer to as a church today. You know, every town or city has, you know, a couple different churches in it for people to gather for local worship, very much so what a synagogue would be. Okay? Even after the Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, places of local worship still continued. And so in the New Testament times, when Jesus was on scene, they had the temple that Herod had built, but they also had synagogues. And so people would go uh, to their local synagogues, but for feasts and major celebrations, they would make their way to the temple. A synagogue was to be established in a community if a community had at least 10 Jewish men uh, within the community. And most communities of any side had at least one synagogue, if not multiple ones. 
Okay? And an interesting thing I was reading and studying up all about synagogues, and maybe you guys are like, this is boring, but I find it quite interesting. A synagogue had to be located close enough for faithful Jews to attend without breaking the Sabbath by exceeding the distance the rabbis would allow one to walk on a Sabbath day. And so if you walk too far on a Sabbath day, they'd say that's work, you're working on the Sabbath, you can't do that. So the synagogue had to be close enough and so that's why they had multiple local ones, was uh, close enough to where you wouldn't break the Sabbath law by walking to church uh, or to the synagogue. So these synagogues would be led by local elders, and they would oversee the ministry of a synagogue. And amongst those local elders, one would be selected as the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was in charge of caring for the building and selecting participants in the Sabbath services, and also they would be used to settle civic disputes uh, within a community as well. So uh, most rulers of the synagogue were very prominent individuals, people that were well-off, people that were uh, well-respected, and people that had power and influence. And Jairus was one of these men. He was a ruler of a synagogue, a man of great power and influence, one well-off and well-respected. Jairus came to Jesus, and the first thing he did was worship Jesus. I like that. Okay? The word translated for worship in the Greek is proskuneo, and it means to kiss the hand of one in token of reverence, or to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. And so Jairus, he was a leading Jewish man in his community, a man of power and prestige. And yet before he came making his request, he first, first worshipped the Lord. I, I see here a good example for us to follow. Oftentimes when we go to the Lord, we come to Him and and immediately we lift up our needs and our requests to Him. And oftentimes when we go to the Lord in prayer, we forget to take time to worship the Lord. I I believe that when we worship the Lord, we, we acknowledge who He is and the reverence that is due to Him. And when we take the time to set our eyes upon Him, and take them off of our cares and our worries and the things that we're about to pray about, then oftentimes our prayers will change. The attitude and tone and, and, and perspective of our prayer requests will change when we take the time to worship and acknowledge God before we bring to Him these requests. And so I thought, just a note there, that Jairus, he came before he brought his request, he worshipped. Well, after worshiping Jesus, Jairus then declared, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jairus, interestingly, he comes very boldly to the Lord and he makes a very difficult request. He wants Jesus to bring back to life his daughter that had just died. This man uh, makes a very bold declaration of faith in power of Jesus to bring back to life his daughter. And, you know, as we think about declarations of faith and boldness in faith, it it wasn't quite the declaration that the centurion made as the centurion believed that God would only have to say the word and his servant would be healed. Uh, Jairus here, he believes that Jesus needs to touch his daughter in order to be healed. But nonetheless, the request that he makes seems to me just a a mightier request for 
not just healing, but she's dead. And I want you to bring her back to life. That's a bold request for Jairus to make. Jairus, uh, excuse me, Jesus responded to Jairus' request and set on his way to his house. And on his way to the house, we already looked at the account of the woman with the blood flow. He interacts with her. And, but as you think about these two events, I find it interesting, the details of Jairus' situation in comparison to the woman with the blood flow issue. I was looking up and reading different commentators. A lot of them all talked about the different parallels uh, and, and opposites, really, of these accounts. If you look about it, it's interesting that Jairus, uh, Jairus and this woman, they, two opposite people, they met at the feet of Jesus. Okay? Jairus was a leading Jewish man. She was an anonymous woman with no prestige or resources. He was a synagogue leader while her affliction kept her from even gathering for worship. Jairus came pleading for his daughter. The woman came with a need of her own. The girl had been healthy for 12 years and then died. The woman had been ill for 12 years and was now made whole. Jairus' need was public. All knew it, but the woman's need was private. Only Jesus understood. But both Jairus and the woman trusted Christ. And as we'll see... He met both of their needs. Verse 23 tells us that when Jesus came into Jairus' house, that he saw flute players. It was customary in that day and time to hire professional mourners to come as a part of a funeral service. In fact, the Mishnah, uh, which is the oral tradition of the Jewish law, prescribed that no less than two flutes and one wailing woman would have to accompany uh, a funeral type of burial service. And so uh, this was part of the custom of the day. And as Jesus arrived, people had already started gathering and mourning over the death of Jairus' daughter. And that's when Jesus addressed the crowd and he declared, Make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. As I think of that, I kind of think, well, that's a little bit weird. Was he like... Just using, I don't know, I didn't understand. Because everyone else, uh, it seemed like she was dead. But uh, perhaps there was still the faintest of that life still remained within this little body of Jairus' daughter. Everyone else around felt that she was dead. Even Jairus himself believed that she was dead. Uh, and I, I was looking at it and I thought, well, maybe he was using a euphemism. Okay? Euphemism is kind of like a... a a nice way to, to talk about something that's not so nice. Okay? And so sleep was often used as a euphemism for the dead. Perhaps that is what Jesus is referring to here. Although it doesn't seem likely based upon the response that he received. He wasn't being cordial. They kind of ridiculed him. So uh, ultimately Jesus, as you look at that, he must have known her condition better than anybody else. And even though everybody else said she's dead, he knew that there was still life in her and that she was sleeping the people that were gathered around in mourning they ridiculed jesus for his words Uh, that word used for ridiculed is a word that means to laugh at to scorn or to mock and uh, i wonder and i seriously doubt if these people realized who they were speaking to Uh, i feel that is often the case those that want to mock or ridicule jesus have no clue who they are speaking about As Jesus ushered out the crowd, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Amazingly, Jesus was able to revive this girl. 
What little life remained in her was immediately strengthened and she arose to her feet. And I think as we consider the account of Jairus and his daughter, I think the thing that sticks out to me is that God has the power to bring life to things that are seemingly dead. God has the power to bring to life things that are seemingly dead. Jairus' daughter was seemingly dead, and yet Jesus was able to restore life to her. And He can do the same for us. Perhaps there's people here today that have something in your life that you feel is just dead, or it's next to dying. Maybe it's just life in general. Life just seems dead to you. Maybe you feel you've just lost purpose and meaning in life. God can bring life back to you. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you feel like your marriage is just, just kind of dead. Maybe there's, there's nothing there anymore. Maybe once, once it was lively and exciting, but now it's boring and lifeless. I've seen God restore life to marriages, and even raise them to newer heights, ones that they've never experienced before when they've been surrendered to the Lord. Maybe it's your relationships with certain family members or loved ones, your children. Okay? You might think that it's just there's, there's nothing there. God can bring life to that. Okay? Whatever it may be in your life that is seemingly dead, I want to encourage you that you can bring it to Jesus and He will bring life to it. That's what he did for Jairus, and I believe it's what he can do for you and me today. Let's continue. Verses 27 through 31, we're going to look at the next account of healing. It says, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Here we are introduced to two blind men that are following Jesus. I find that to be peculiar. How would two blind men follow Jesus? Uh... Unfortunately, Matthew... So what I usually do is I look at Matthew's account and say, Oh, Matthew never gives me any details. And I look at Mark and Luke. Well, Mark and Luke don't tell you anything else. Uh, they don't even record this uh, healing. And so I was like, Oh, man, what am I... <laughs> That's kind of weird. And, and so the info here, the, the details, the, the, we're not given a, a whole lot of them. Some commentators suggested that these two blind men must have had friends that helped uh, lead them to Jesus and that they're simply... Just not listed. For whatever reason, Matthew didn't want to list them. Other commentators suggested that they had to help, uh, that they had no help, but simply were able to follow the noise of the crowd of people that often surrounded Jesus to make their way to Him. The blind men, they were crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Interesting, uh, the verbs crying out and saying, they're written in the present active tense, which means that it it's a, a, indicates a continued action. Yeah, that they were doing it, and that they were repeatedly doing it, uh, is implied. And so, I think, that seems to point an evidence, more evidence to the fact that they didn't have help. Because they were continually crying out to Him. And if they had someone that was ushering them along, 
maybe they wouldn't have to do that. Um, and so they continued uh, calling out to him. For that, like I said, I believe I lean more towards the thought that they were on their own and that they were searching after him even as blind men. Because it, it just makes more sense that way as, I, as you consider it. And these blind men, they were calling out to Jesus and referring to him as the son of David. Okay? The son of David is a very clear title reference to the Messiah. Okay? According to the Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was to come from the line of David. And so the Jews had long waited for their Messiah to come. And these two blind men have properly identified Jesus as the Messiah. Hey, remember that Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Okay? Well, it's actually an English word, but it's the transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed one. Okay? And it's equivalent to the Greek word that means anointed one, which is Christos. Okay? When we're, where we get Jesus Christ. Christ is a reference to him being the Messiah, the anointed one. Okay? And, and I do find it a bit interesting as I said, peculiar, that this is the first mention of the title Son of David in the Gospel accounts, and that it came from two blind men. I just think that's a little odd, that other people had opportunities to see the great works that he was doing and, and identify and witness all those things, and these guys didn't, but yet they were able to rightly identify him as the Messiah it's just interesting to me. Um, it would seem that these two blind men were a whole lot more perceptive than people that actually had the ability to see. These two blind men, they requested from Jesus mercy. Mercy is probably one of the best things that they could have asked for from Jesus. Okay? Mercy is an aspect of God's love that causes Him to help the miserable. I've heard it said that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Okay? And they say that grace is getting what you don't deserve. There's a little bit of a difference. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. Okay? Mercy here is the only thing that we can request on our own. You see, there's nothing that we've done that can merit God's blessings and provision upon our own lives. And so we simply have to ask for mercy. We ask God not to give to us what we really deserve. The punishment of our sins is death, and so we cry out and we ask for mercy. God, don't give to us what we deserve. That is mercy. And these men, they were calling out for mercy. The famous British preacher... British preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote in his sermon notes, their sole appeal was to mercy. There was no talk about merit, no pleading of their past sufferings or their persevering endeavors or their resolves for the future, but have mercy on us. He will never win a blessing from God who demands it as if he had a right to it. That's what Spurgeon said. I'll say it again, the last thing. He a person, he will never win a blessing from God who demands it as if he had a right to it. 
We don't have any rights to, to, to blessings. You know, this guy didn't have a right to blessings. We did, I demand that you make me you know, well that I can see. All they could plead for was just mercy. They could just plead for mercy. Verse 28 seems to indicate that Jesus didn't immediately respond to these blind men. Okay, crying out to him. He simply continued until he came into the house and he made the blind men follow him all the way inside the house. And some may think that a bit mean of the Lord. Okay? From the outside looking in, it could appear that Jesus was making these blind men search him out and, and to find him. Something that would be difficult, obviously, for two blind men to do. It's almost as if Jesus was, was playing hide-and-seek with these guys, and they're blind, and he's just walking along, and, and he goes inside a house, and he's like, well, they've come and find me. Uh, it, it may seem that way, okay? And, and we can look at that and say, man, that's pretty harsh or even cruel-hearted of the Lord. But we know our Lord not to be that way, okay? And so there must be some other sort of explanation. Why does he make them search him out? Obviously, he's not just playing games with these guys, right? Okay. And let me suggest a couple of reasons to you why Jesus would not stop and tend to them, but rather make them search him out and find him. For one, we know that Jesus has been trying to keep somewhat of a low profile, okay? And not draw too much attention to himself. Another public healing in front of the crowds would surely draw more attention to himself. Verse 30 uh, of our account here supports this idea of him not wanting to draw attention to himself. Okay? Another possible reason is that because these men were crying after Jesus with a messianic term. And perhaps he knew it was not best to receive that title just yet. Because the people had an improper understanding of the work of the Messiah. And they thought he was going to come and be this... Uh, political ruler that was going to come and save the day. And so he said, well, they're calling me the Messiah, basically a reference to the Messiah. And if I stop, maybe perhaps it'll gather momentum. And he didn't want that. But thirdly, I, I suppose, and this is what I think is most probable, is that Jesus was simply testing their faith. Did these two men really believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was able to heal them? It's almost as if Jesus said, then let them prove that through their actions. Let them prove their faith through their actions. Okay? Were they willing to step out in faith and pursue Jesus, not knowing where it may lead them? Obviously, they don't know what's going on. They're blind. Okay? Were they willing to persevere and stumble over things and not let a, a single thing to stand in their way of reaching Him? They were. Okay? They didn't allow their blindness to hinder them from seeking after Jesus. They didn't allow obstacles in the road to keep them from ultimately finding Jesus in the house. They persevered, crying out to Him and listening for Him or His disciples so that they could find their way. Once the blind men followed after and found Jesus in the house, Jesus replied to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they replied, Yes, Lord. Jesus asked if they truly believed, and their response was so simple, yet very telling. Yes, Lord. They acknowledged Jesus as Lord, as God. Okay? Again, I'm amazed at the perception of these two blind men. 
Jesus then touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. It it wasn't a matter of in proportion to your faith, but because of your faith. Because of your faith, let this be done to you. Not because you have a little bit of faith and you're only going to be able to see, you know, you know, I don't know what's the not twenty twenty, something worse than that. Uh, far sighted or near sighted because you didn't have enough faith. It's not that. He's just saying, Let it be accounted to you according to your faith. You have faith, so you will be healed. That's the, the, what it means here. Jesus healed them based upon their faith. These men pushed through the obstacles. They didn't let anything keep them from coming to Jesus. And according to their faith, God healed them. These two blind, blind men serve for us a wonderful example of perseverance, hope, and faith. These two blind men teach us a lesson. The lesson that I feel like we, we've grabbed from these men most of all is that We should never let anything hinder us from pursuing Jesus. Don't let anything ever hinder you from pursuing the Lord. These blind men, they didn't allow anything. They didn't allow obstacles in the road to hinder them. These men could have allowed their, their difficulties, their disability from keeping them from seeking after Jesus, but they didn't. They pushed through those in their pursuit of Jesus and their faith. It was richly rewarded. And I would encourage you, the same will happen to us as we persevere and push through. And don't let anything get in our way from pursuing Jesus. Let's look at our last healing from this portion and read verses 32 through 34. It says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Here we're introduced to a man that was mute and demon-possessed. Okay? To be mute could mean one of two things. One, that you are not able to talk. Or two, that you are both deaf and unable to speak. We're not told uh, which of the two this man was, just that he was mute. This man was also demon-possessed. The demon seems to have, uh, excuse me, the demon seems to have placed this man in his current condition. His inability to speak and or hear is a result of the demon that dwells within him. As we'll see, when he gets cast out, he all of a sudden has his uh, ability to speak. So Jesus cast out the demon, and the mute man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. I find that response interesting, because this wasn't the first time that a demon was cast out of a man. Okay? And so it was, makes me wonder why they would say such a statement. Okay? Uh, perhaps it's because the statement was said as more of a summary statement in regards to all that's going, all the healings that are going on. They've never seen anything like this in all of Israel. And perhaps that's what, he, what the context is, entails. Another commentator suggested a different opinion. And, that, and I tried to verify his information. I couldn't find any other information, but I thought it worthy to at least share with you. But do take it with a grain of salt. I'll say that. Okay? This commentator, he suggested that in the Jewish understanding of demon possession, this man could not be helped. This was because most rabbis of that day thought that the essential first step in exorcism was to compel or trick the demon into telling you its name. The name was then thought of as a a handle by which the demon could then be removed. 
And so, therefore, a demon that made a man mute had cleverly prevented the revelation of the name of the demon inhabiting the victim and therefore prevented the exorcism. And for these reasons, this miracle was particularly amazing to the multitudes. It showed not only the complete authority of Jesus over the demonic realm, but also the weakness of the rabbi's traditions. Maybe, I don't know. Okay, I, I, When I first read it, I thought, oh, maybe it's just a summary statement. But I was reading, I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there's something to that. Uh, I couldn't find any other resources to verify that. So, like I said, we'll, we'll see. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. But I would serve, I, I think it serves as an explanation as to why the multitude responded in the way they did. We see that the Pharisees, they were once again part of the multitude that witnessed Jesus cast out the demon from this mute man. And I want to look at their words. For in it, I think that's where we're going to find our lesson from this healing. Verse 34 says, But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now the Pharisees, they're trying to discredit the work of Jesus and attribute His power over demons to the ruler of demons. Later on in Matthew, they will do this again, and Jesus will speak towards their accusations, and so we'll save that study for a couple chapters from now. I think it's chapter 12 when we get into Matthew. They'll say it again, and then he's going to address it. And he's going to talk about a divided house. We won't go into it now. We'll save that study for later. Here's what I do want to point out, though. Okay. Last week, if you were here with us, you know that when we covered the beginning of chapter 9, we saw how the Pharisees and scribes were questioning everything that Jesus was doing. Okay? If you guys remember, they questioned his ability to forgive sins. They questioned why he hung out with and ate with sinners and tax collectors. They questioned why he and his disciples didn't fast like them and, and like John's disciples. And with each of their questions, Jesus gave an answer and an explanation of why he did what he did. These men, these Pharisees, they simply were not satisfied with Jesus' answers nor His explanations, and so they have changed their game plan. They've, They've switched plays. Instead of continuing to question Jesus about what He is doing, they're simply going to do their best to discredit what He's doing and attribute His work to the work of the devil. I find that this sort of thing happens more often than you would think. And I think it is the lesson that I want to point out to you from the healing of this mute and demon-possessed man. And that's this. That when people don't understand matters of faith, they often seek to discredit them. Okay? When people don't understand matters of faith, they will often seek to discredit them. I found it to be true in my life on numerous occasions. Okay? People will more readily believe in happen chance or circumstances or coincidence than attribute something to faith. People will be more often than not try to belittle our faith and think that it's maybe just a phase in life. Oh, they're just kind of, you know, they need Jesus because they're going through a tough time right now in life. It's just a phase. Once things get better, uh, they'll forget all about it. People will offer up any sort of excuse not to believe even if their alternative takes more faith to believe in, they'll still cling to that than to attribute something to faith. And I find this to be true because if they were to acknowledge any possibility of truth to the faith that we claim and follow, 
then it creates for them a dilemma of responsibility and accountability. If they acknowledge the work of God and matters of faith, it creates with them an accountability to respond to that faith. And since they don't want to respond to the faith and they don't want to be held accountable to the faith, they do and say anything to discredit our faith. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They don't want to acknowledge the work of God through Jesus and they don't want to be held accountable to Him. And so they throw out these false accusations trying to discredit Him. And you see it happen a lot in this world. To discredit Christianity or discredit your faith in God, they will put out any sort of alternative. Even if it takes a whole lot more faith to believe in it, they'd much rather grab a hold of that than to solidify or recognize the faith that we have. It happened back then and it's still happening today. So don't be surprised when people try to discredit your faith or minimize your faith in God. It's something that the Pharisees did and it's still going on. Let's quickly look at our last few verses here. We have a few more minutes. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This last portion is a, is a bit of a summary of the actions of Jesus. We're told that Jesus continued His ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing throughout the cities and villages. Verse 36 tells us that when Jesus saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The multitudes, they didn't have someone to lead them, to care for them to protect them like a shepherd does a flock of sheep. The religious elite, the Pharisees, the the scribes, they were supposed to be doing that. But they were failing miserably. Jesus had compassion on all of them. The leper, the servant, the unclean, the rich, the poor, the blind, the demon-possessed, the tax collectors, the sinners, the lame, the mute, the young, and the old. Jesus had compassion on all of them. And let me tell you that Jesus is the same today that He was some 2,000 years ago. He still has compassion and love for us all. Jesus loved them and He wanted to care for them all and He realized that the need was very great And that's why he says in verse 37 and verse 38, he shared these words with his disciples. He said, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me tell you, that statement is as true today as it ever was. Church, family, the harvest truly is plentiful here in Iwakuni. And there's a lot of work to be done. 
But I find that the laborers are few. In John's Gospel, Jesus said this. He said, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. I think that some of you may have that mindset that you're looking to the future and you're neglecting to see what God is doing right here, right now. I've noticed in my time here in Iwakuni, not necessarily just confined to this church, but just in general, I've noticed that there are some here that are just just biding their time. Okay? You're like the ones Jesus referred to when He quoted others as saying, there's still four more months. And, and some of you, you're just... Maybe just sitting around, counting down the days until you leave Iwakuni, and you're, and you're missing out on the harvest that is right before you. It's, it's white unto harvest. Okay? And I don't say this to condemn anyone, okay? but I say this to encourage you to look up and to see what God is doing here and now. I believe that the harvest not only is not only in other people's lives, but in our lives as well. When we make ourselves available to be laborers in His field, we get to reap a harvest not only in the lives that we touch and impact, but also in our own lives. As God shows us incredible things and He builds and strengthens our own faith, as we serve and labor for Him. And so I would encourage you, as Jesus encouraged His disciples, to please pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And as you do, I want to encourage you to listen intently to the Lord and see if He just may have you to answer that prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are doing great things here in Iwakuni, right here and right now. And Lord, I'm blessed. Blessed to see so many that are willing to come and be a part and to join that labor field. Uh, but Lord, it always, seems to always be true that the laborers are few. So Father, we want to pray to you and ask you, and to beseech you, say, Lord, would you send laborers into your harvest to be used for your honor and for your glory, to impact all those who you love, the, the lepers of this world, the unclean, the, the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, Lord, the rich, the poor, whoever you would have to us to, to come into contact with. May we have your love for them. Lord, I thank you uh, that you love us so much. Lord, I'm thankful that you meet us where we're at. And you know where we've come from and where we're headed. Lord, may we be diligent just to seek after you, not allow anything to get in the way of pursuing you. Lord, I'll just, I, I thank you that you allow us to be a part of your kingdom, that you allow us to be your hands and feet. What a tremendous blessing and honor that is. Empower us for your service. We ask this in Jesus' name.